Hey everyone, you're listening to another episode of the Divergent Conversations podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Patrick Casal, joined today by my other co-host, Dr. Neff. And today we're going to talk about finding a neurodivergent affirmative therapist and how complicated that can be, questions to ask, things to avoid, um, resources, etc. So a really cool topic segueing off of uh, Megan and my conversations around our own diagnosis history and stories and some of our personal uh, uh, pathways into kind of finding therapy for ourselves and how challenging that has been. And I think it's been a rough road, but I think we've both kind of have got that sorted out now, but I think it's taken a long time and a lot of uh, trial and error and a lot of misdiagnosis, missed opportunities, and unfortunately, sometimes uh, some trauma involved as well. Yeah, that's a good summary of it. I'm I'm curious, because I know you really like your current therapist. How did you find her? Was it like, were you specifically looking for a neurodivergent affirming therapist or was it coincidental? It was coincidental because when I was looking, I had not even gotten my results back from the testing that I had done yet. So I was looking um, very specifically for someone who could support me with certain things like feeling like I'm never doing enough, I'm being lazy, Uh, I'm being unproductive. (laughs) All those ADHD um, things. Yeah, all the ADHD things really of like, and I also wanted to finally try hard to absorb and take pride in some of my accomplishments instead of just Mm -hmm. moving to the next thing um simultaneously was doing testing um uh to to, uh, words to figure out if i was autistic if it was adhd if i was missing something and got my results uh after i had scheduled an intake with her so Mm -hmm. i was really actually very anxious about that first interaction because I had heard some horror stories from some friends who had recently been diagnosed as autistic. They had told their therapists and their therapists like kind of in the middle of conversation were just like, yeah, I don't feel competent enough to help you. And yeah, yeah, I I see and hear about that a lot. Like, "Mm, sorry, can't touch that. Yep. Refer you to a specialist. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I think the problem, you know, is who are the specialists? Right. And and they're working with kids. Yeah, they're working with kiddos. And a lot of the times they're also practicing from an ABA model. Yeah. Um, And I think that just like any other marginalized group, when someone says like we're anti-racist or we are Uh pro-BLM or we are like supporters Uh of the LGBTQ community, it's very easy to just say that and not oh have my the gosh. or the competency yeah. or the ongoing yeah. consultation. Um, so I think it's very easy to get caught yeah. in between the like finding the person who knows a little bit about neurodiversity, but like really isn't a specialist, but like yeah. at least is open to working with people. And I think that's where a lot of people end up because yeah. we have so few uh, resources out there, at least, um, in my opinion, in, in Western North Carolina, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I like, I hope this is encouraging. I, this probably isn't a super popular opinion, but I am less in part, probably because of my experience with my, um, previous therapist, but I'm less convinced the person has to be a specialist in our diversity and way more about their attitude and their energy and their ability to be curious and their ability to be relational and ability to be interpersonal. Like if you find someone who is curious with you and will engage in the interpersonal process of like, what's happening here? Can we understand that? Can we, do we have this like psychic strength to tolerate looking at that? Um, then I think you're, you're in good hands. So for me, I often it's less about how, what trainings have they done? What do they know? And more about who they are as a human. Um, and are they open to being curious about this with someone? Yeah, I agree. A hundred percent. I think that, you know, for any therapeutic relationship, that's, that's really crucial. Mm-hmm. Um, much more so than like trainings or certifications or letters behind someone's name. Yeah. And 
you know, we still see a lot of therapists who say like, I specialize in ASD or I specialize in uh-huh. Asperger's or uh-huh. whatever the case may be. And you're like, well, I'm not going to refer to this person probably. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. Checking that one off the list. Uh, yeah. So I, I think you're right though. I mean, the curiosity piece and the ability to just really be open and, and to even be learning as they're going, you know, a lot of therapists, well, I think all therapists should be doing continuous lifelong learning, but the ability to do so with a client who they may be unfamiliar with mm-hmm. or they mm-hmm. don't have much uh, background in working with. I think that's really important as well. And that, that goes a long way to kind of build that trust and rapport. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, I think uh, the horror stories we hear a lot of, like the, I told my therapist this and they referred me out. And I, I used to experience that a lot when I only worked with um male identifying clients who were struggling with addiction, a lot of them would come to me and say, like, I talked about my drug usage or my oh, you know, lack of sobriety. That's a, yeah, that's a real common refer out. Yep. 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 Like middle of conversation stuff, like someone saying like, hey, I I yeah. relapsed and I'm, I went back to yeah. using uh, amphetamine and then the therapist saying like, whoa, all right, this isn't for me. I'm going to refer you out. But I've always... So shaming. It Can you imagine disclosing that and someone would be like, oh, no, yep. I, can't handle, I can't handle you. Right. And like, what do you expect to be happening in the middle of that therapeutic conversation? Like, hmm. you can't wait until the end of the session to have that conversation about referrals. Right. And, and or, or even to take an interpersonal approach of like, I'm hearing this and I, I care deeply about you. And here are some of the things coming up for me around this. Of, um, This isn't my background. And I'm wondering, am I the best person to support you through this and then like to process it with the person versus just that sorry no and I mean talk about like an attachment injury there's just so much about that that makes me cringe I thought it was mind-boggling and I thought my you know this person was just this was being embellished then I met the therapist and they like confirmed everything they're like yeah I said that that's that's how this went that's how I referred them to you and I was like what the fuck like you can't just i think therapists are so often unable to handle like healthy confrontation and feedback process in a in a relationship so yeah. we avoid it and then it's like i'm gonna cover my ass so i think the best yeah. scenario yeah. is like, refer out refer out refer out yeah there's a lot of cover your ass um which which then and that that think again what happens to the person when they feel like a liability I've just disclosed something really vulnerable and I'm now a liability. Like um, Martin Buber is a philosopher I'm a big fan of and he talks about the I, thou, I, it encounter of like I, thou is seeing the sacredness of the other I, it is that kind of objectifying. Like in that moment of I can't handle you, I'm referring you out. Like that became an I, it moment. And in a relationship where there's supposed to be a lot of I, thou encounter, it's just, it's so wounding. It's really wounding. And, you know, I think so often, right, if we're talking about people who are ashamed of their diagnoses or their presenting concerns and they've been stigmatized and discriminated against and you come into therapy, a place where, like, you've finally been able to pick up the phone or email and finally made this appointment and then that is the response, the odds of you seeking out therapeutic support ever again in your life drastically reduces Mm -hmm. yeah this is something i tell like trainees when i'm working with um like psychologists in training or therapists in training is because there's so much pressure when you're in training to like do everything perfectly and also just remind them like if they have a positive encounter with you that that is incredible because it means that they can trust the process of therapy they're more likely to go back when they need it like make that your goal. Have a positive encounter with this other human. And um it, it's not about like doing all the techniques perfectly or making sure their depression symptoms are all the way reduced. It's can you have a human to humor wow, words, human yeah. to human, um, authentic, meaningful encounter where they feel like this is something that they want to return to. Absolutely. I think that's a testament to doing really wonderful work. And that's where the healing and the, that, you know, that takes place to you. And someone then becomes much more invested 
And then the shamefulness and the stigmatization kind of dissipates. And it's like, okay, that wasn't so bad. Like, I can go and talk about this. And I will say, you know, you mentioned my own therapeutic experience. And that intake was very anxiety provoking for me because I had just gotten these diagnoses. I was still processing. And I was like really excited to see this person. I've been waiting a long time. She had quite a significant wait list. And I was like, uh-huh. I'm just going to wait it out. And, you know, I, I want to see this person. Um, and I would have really probably been pretty devastated had the mm-hmm. uh, response been something different. But what yeah. happened was I was just like, listen, I want to be really transparent with you. Um, I did just do testing for autism and ADHD. And I did come, you know, I did get or receive a diagnosis for both uh, autism and ADHD. And I just want to name that because I'm fearful that you're going to tell me that we can't work together. And Mm -hmm. she was like, oh, yeah, my son's autistic. So Mm -hmm. you're probably in a good spot. And I was like, oh, well, this feels like that's amazing. Yeah, it felt like very much aligned with what I've Mm -hmm. been working towards and a couple of good friends in town had given me her name and I think they probably knew I was autistic. So I think they did mm. so with like the best of intentions in terms of referrals. Yeah. So I've been really fortunate and I know that and I don't take that for granted at all. She yeah. actually listens to our podcast and follows your oh, information on uh, Instagram. So she's excited for all this stuff to come yeah. out. Yeah. I, I can't stand it. like, uh, for like, do y'all process that as client therapy of like, and then yeah. you see this other side of me? Yeah, because that's that's really interesting. I think that dual relationships. I'm I'm okay with dual relationships. I wonder if that's an autistic thing because I am too, and I kept pushing my fa- my therapist. And I, I'm I we wrapped working together, but we worked together for like four and a half years, and I kept pushing for more dual relationships, and he held the frame of like. And I mean, he's he's psychoanalytic. It's a little right. bit more, but um, I think it's kind of an autistic thing, and maybe related to the whole like hierarchy of we're two humans having a really meaningful encounter. Why is it so contained? But I actually understand it therapeutically. Also, why it's important. But sorry, I interrupted. Talk more. Oh, about that's, yeah, I think that's important to name because I think that's true. Because now I'm thinking about all the autistic therapists that I know or that I employ who. Mm-hmm. also are absolutely okay with having dual relationships in their lives and i think it is like the recognition that yes this is this setting is for this but like we are also humans mm-hmm. who live in a community together and like mm-hmm. there's going to be overlap and like there's going to be mm-hmm. potential interaction in other areas of our lives so i actually think it's great because what that's that's actually a good segue into what to look for in a therapist who's ND affirming because mm-hmm. someone who will willingly explore your special interests. Uh, yeah. I think, yeah. That's, I think yeah. that's so, so important for someone to like, not just shrug it off, not just try to mm-hmm. like deflect or to, you know, kind of transition to a different topic. But if a therapist is recognizing, yeah. like, oh, this autistic client is really into a, B, and C. Like, let's just go with it and see where that yeah. goes because that's that's another way to drop that guard down quite a bit. Oh, absolutely. I that's what, when I'm um, working with therapists and they're kind of. I, I typically when I'm working with therapists, a lot of it's around like helping them refine their assessment skills. And a question I'll often ask is, do you feel like you contact them when they start talking about an interest? And by contact, I mean like you see them, like you feel them in the room for the first time. And when, when therapists are like, yes, that to me, that's a like, okay, that's, that's a green flag that we're looking at autism here is yeah. you feel like you're contacting the person for the first time when they start talking about their special interests before that it's, it's, you're asking all those social based questions, like, tell me about your family, tell me about your friends. And you're getting like one word answers or like, it, it yeah. just feels really, you don't feel like there's a person there probably because most of us are in free state when we get asked social based questions. Right. Um, and so if you want to get access to the person, you're absolutely doing that through special interests versus those social-based questions. I think that's a huge part of autistic affirming therapy. Yeah, I agree. And I think that makes a huge difference. It, it just feels more real, feels more authentic. Mm-hmm. 
you know, you can really drop in then and and you can see the personality start to come out too. Yeah. And excitability yeah. as well. Um, emotion, which is good for therapy. Emotion. Right. Yes. Like I just got, did you see how my effect just like went way up when I started talking about like special, because that, because talking about autism and special interest therapy is. Is your special, special interest? interest. Yeah. One of your special interests. Yeah. One of my special interests and my energy just went way up. Yeah. I mean, I think it's so important to follow that. And so often I think I've been in so many therapeutic relationships as the client where, you know, I, I am just either going to be like robotic sounding board. I rehearse totally. answers, like know what to oh, say yeah. versus like the ability to dig deeper and actually go into processing mm-hmm. trauma or, or lived experience because yeah, we're connecting on the same wavelength because you're mm-hmm. allowing for me to, to diverge where my brain is going instead of trying to circle back constantly and like, mm-hmm. so let's, let's talk about this. It's like, no, I don't want to talk about that right now. And that to me, like that would be a, if we're talking about kind of red flags of a ND affirming therapist versus not, I think that would be a, a red flag of someone who's maybe not a great fit. If every time you start talking about something you're excited about, like the therapist kind of does that with you for a couple of minutes, but then circles you back to, okay. And the point of this is, Right. And so, but tell me about um, like how that makes you feel or tell me about like trying to redirect it back and to what a, happens to a typical, typical autistic person when that happens to them. Like what is your, what happened? like what's the in, what's instinct the, or like the reaction typically when someone like does that? Mm-hmm. Well, I'll, I'll share my experience. I was working with some, so I was working with a spiritual director, which is different than therapy, but kind of a tradition, a similar, like, there's a similar back and forth aspect to it. Um, and this was back when I was in the, I, I no longer identify as religious. This was back um, back a few years. But I was explaining, so Moltmann is this theologian I love, and I was really into Moltmann. And he was helping me um, as a, he's, he's very philosophical. So he's helping me like think through a lot of my psychic stuff, as well as my, like relationship to the sacred. And I was getting really into Moltmann and explaining it because I was reading this like thousand page book at the time. Um, And then my spiritual director was like, yes, but when you talk about that, where do you feel in your body? And she was bringing it back to like an holistic. And I was like, I was just telling you how I felt about it by like unpacking who Moltmann is, the ideas I'm engaging with. Like I literally was just telling you how I feel about it. But then she was bringing it back to holistic speech of emotion words, body words. Um, so I froze in that state and I like shut down. And I think I went back to like the pre-scripted um, conversation. It was a require. It was a requirement of a program I was in when I did it. So I think all the other sessions after that, I would come up with, this is what I'm going to say. I I just kind of bared through them. I I would brace for it because it felt very intrusive um, attending these visits. And I felt very inadequate of like, why are these questions hard for me to answer? I didn't know I was autistic at the time. So like, why is this so hard for me to answer? Every time I'd go academic, she'd try to bring me back. But I was, that's how I disclose my inner world to people is through ideas. Um, And I think she saw that as a defense. And so I was trying to, bringing me back into emotion language, which is a language that I'm not, that's not how I share my inner world with people. I'm not like, this is how I feel about it. And that's just not my language. Yeah. Yeah, That's what happened to me. I I froze and got defensive and scripted out how I make it through the rest of sessions. Yep. And I think that also, in in my opinion, creates some shamefulness internally of like, Mm -hmm. at least for me, what happens is I shut down like you just, kind of mentioned and then I started thinking like why the fuck can't I access this like why can't Mm -hmm. I why can't I speak like this or or reference this and and then I get really in my head Mm -hmm. and that's what's been nice about my current therapist is she has said things like that before where she's like you know do you want to drop in today or do you want to do this oh I like that she's getting consent yeah she always asks and I'm always like no I don't I don't want to do that um 
And mm-hmm. she reads my facial expressions really well. And she's like, you, you're not here for this today, are you? I'm like, no, I don't want to do that. So can we yeah. fucking talk about what I want to talk about? Um, uh-huh. And, you know, sometimes that is definitely defense mechanism too. But at the same time, totally. yeah. The, the how does it make you feel or where do you feel that in your body? Like all the typical Oof. therapeutic language, I just can't tolerate it. And uh-huh. it just makes me, I've already checked out then. Like I'm just going to yeah. go yeah. to that vacant state. Yeah. And just, yeah. Yeah. Head nodding and short answers and does it feel intrusive to you to me it feels so intrusive for someone to ask like yeah. where your body is at or or even how you're feeling i think it does feel intrusive and i think it's because and this is again just my perspective is like when you're being asked that mm-hmm. like saying the other person doesn't really see you and doesn't really understand your inner world and mm-hmm. that just makes me feel like we're really not connecting and I'm kind of going to check out. I just don't want to have the conversation anymore. Yeah. Yes. I think the reason that I, I worked with my last therapist I worked with, um, was, well, first it was the first male therapist I worked with. And I think that worked well for me because, um, like all the emotion feely stuff doesn't work for me. And a lot of, gosh, this is so gendered and binary, but I've been to, I haven't been to any gender queer therapist before. Um, but the women I worked with who were therapists were very like feely emotion and I needed someone who was more analytic, intellectual, which I found more easily in a male therapist than I did in the female therapist that I tried. Again, there's going to be a lot of variance there. Um, but for, for me, I, I realized working with a male therapist ended up working a lot better. And there's plenty of female therapists who are also not feely warm, but I think, okay, I'm going to stop. I'm like feeling myself digging myself into a hole around creating gender stereotypes. And I'm going to stop trying to dig out of that. Um, okay, where? Oh, this is where I was going with that. ADC route trail. Um, in our first, after the intake, in our first session we had, he didn't start with, how are you feeling? He started with what's on your mind. And I found myself opening up, which I w- was not normal for me for therapy experiences. And I realized that after I was like, that made such a difference. That simple question, what's on your mind versus how are you today or how was your week? Um, that felt invitational versus intrusive. And so I think that's one of the reasons we worked together well for so long was, and, and again, we, we didn't know. I didn't know I was autistic. He obviously didn't know. Um, but yeah, I found that a much nicer way of opening the session. Yeah, I like that. Um, what's on your mind? I think when you ask the like, how's it going today? Or how's your week? Or how are you feeling? My instinct is always to be like, good. I'm fine. You know, like nothing's wrong. And then I feel myself as we're going through a therapy session to be like, oh, this is so wrong. Like everything is happening to me right now. But it's <laughs> it's that instant instinct to just immediately answer with a short answer and just move on to the next question. I think that, again, when we're talking about green versus red flags and, and therapy is really the approach has to to really be important. And um, so talking about green flags, like let's highlight the good stuff before. Yeah, we we've, we've kind of been down on therapists today. We're both therapists and we're both shit talking therapists. So I know. And there's a lot of amazing therapists out there like there's therapists who come and pay me like a ridiculous amount an hour to consult with me f- because of one client they have. And like, yes. there are therapists out there who like care so much and are doing the work. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I was even noticing that earlier. It's so like, oh, I feel kind of bad. Um, and I think on social media right now, there's especially in autistic world, there's a lot of um, negative talk around therapists. Yeah. So I was even feeling that of like, gosh, I don't want to, this is all true. And I don't want to be contributing to that narr- narrative of like all therapists are shit therapists and don't know how to work with us. Because there's a lot that, that do. Yeah, there are. I I think all of these conversations are not binary and like yeah. these are not black and white conversations. And I want to highlight both sides of the coin. Yeah. Um, because there are so many bad experiences. There are, uh, yeah. Whether you're autistic or not autistic. I mean, there's there's a lot of bad experiences. But there are a lot of wonderfully positive, transformative, empowering, 
affirming experiences too. And there are a lot of wonderful therapists who are mm-hmm. doing the work, who are curious, who are learning as they go, as we all are, and who are willing to show up and have really difficult conversations, but also be as empathetic and present as possible. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's talk about green flags. What are some that come to your mind when you think about like how you steer people or what they should look for, whether it's looking at the, whether it's like they're doing a search on psychology today or they're on the therapist's webpage, what, what do you think they should be looking for? I think, again, language is important. I think that mm-hmm. you know, I want to see what people are using in terms of identif- identity-based language. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to see, like I mentioned before, are we still using ASD? Are we still using the mm-hmm. term Asperger's? Are we mm-hmm. uh, really committed to the ABA philosophy and and, mm-hmm. and intervention set? Um, I think that I also really want to know about, I, I personally like to know about therapists' identities as well. So I yeah. love disclosure. Like I, I really yeah. value that. And I think that is really helpful for uh, any sort of... Uh, affirmative care but i think those are some green flags that i look for about mm-hmm. you. yeah I, I love that someone who yeah someone who's taking their time to highlight this is how i'm socially positioned in the world is obviously thinking about identity in a thoughtful way so yeah. i i think that is a significant one um yes agree about identity language and this word, I, I love that the word neurodivergent and neurodiversity is becoming more widely used, but that I do see that sometimes sprinkled on websites, but then it's like I, I interact with the content or books. I've read books where they use neurodiversity, but then it's very, it, it feels like they've just like substituted ASD for neurodiversity or neurodivergent. Um, so I also like, I think, I think respond, like paying attention to the energy you feel when you're reading about a therapist's webpage. Um, again, I'm, I'm very interpersonal. And so I, I really trust like what is happening to you when you're on this person's site energetically Absolutely. in your body. What are you feeling? <laughs> um, but paying attention to just how you feel when you're reading about this person and interacting with what they're putting out in the world. I want to know also like therapist takes on self-diagnoses. I think that's. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that it's definitely a pretty controversial topic in that mm-hmm. world, but mm-hmm. I would like to, I always want to know, what do you think about self-diagnosis? Um, That's a great question. Yeah. Yeah. Just because I, I recognize my privilege, like I'm able to go and get testing done and, mm-hmm. and have, yeah. seek out therapy that I want to seek out instead of just what's mm-hmm. in me. And, um, so I want to know about that. Um, I want to know about their, you know, you were mentioning, uh, Carissa, um, or, and her webpage and their resources that they have on there and all the Mm -hmm. frequently asked questions and ways that they can help guide through. Yeah. Uh, I want to know about thoughts on stimming during sessions and like, oh yeah. Able to have any sort of sensory, uh, soothing tools uh how are we gonna set up like do we how are we feeling about eye contact even like mm-hmm. in terms of virtual sessions or in-person sessions but virtual mm-hmm. for sure like mm-hmm. my therapist always encourages me and she'll say it like when she can tell i'm really struggling with eye contact mm-hmm. in general she's like please feel free to like look around the room and like mm-hmm. whatever you need to do we do yep. you, i'm right here but you don't have to look at me at all and yeah. At first, that made me feel like really uncomfortable because I'm like <laughs> looking like this and like I'm like I could sense the discomfort, but in reality, like she's just like, okay, it's fine. Like mm-hmm. do whatever you need to do, and I think that yeah. helps really feel really affirming as well. Yeah, yeah, that whole like are the neurotypical scripts kind of being followed in a way where it's assumed like okay, this is how we do it. We sit down, we look at each other we talk for, yeah absolutely that and that's so i for the last 2 years since covid started i've been doing phone therapy with my therapist and i'll go out and walk and i found i really liked that because i could get into my emotions a little bit easier if i was walking um 
and I would say about half the people I work with do phone therapy and a lot of them walk during it because there's something that's regulating about walking. There's, there's none of the eye contact. So I think even asking about like, what's your frame of therapy? And I realize it's really different around the world in Oregon. We're still, um, all medical providers are, are wearing masks and mask therapy is just so hard. I important for health reasons and so hard for therapeutic reasons um, that a lot of therapists in Oregon are still doing teletherapy. I don't know if it's what it's like there. I'd say the Southeast stopped caring a long time ago. <laughs> true, true. But thankfully, Ashland is uh, a bit more progressive than most of the Southeast, but we are doing a, a hybrid mix. Our practice is predominantly telehealth. So like yeah. telehealth for the most part, I've always done telehealth therapy with my therapist. I've never met her in person. Mm. Uh, and she'll encourage that too. Like if she can tell that I'm starting to get dysregulated, she's like, get up and walk around your kitchen yeah. or like, you know, go walk around the house and come back or mm -hmm. do what you need to do to, to regulate mm -hmm. yourself. And I really appreciate the permission to, to do that instead of feeling right. like shameful about it or like, uh -huh. are you going to tell me to sit down or that I'm being distracting or like any uh -huh. of the things that uh -huh. I've heard throughout most of my life? Yeah. 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 And that, I think that can be really healing in a therapy is when the therapist is helping you like think through what do you actually need in this moment? Yeah. Especially for maskers, we're so used to suppressing our needs in any given moment that A, it's hard for us to access what we actually need, let alone to do that in front of another human. So I think therapy can be a really powerful practice ground of, okay, I'm with another human. I, I have some sort of sensory or regulation need in this moment. Can I practice A, checking in, figuring out what the hell it is I need and B, actually doing that in front of an, another human? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's like the epitome of safety uh -huh. is if you can feel comfortable enough to unmask uh -huh. and really have someone else also acknowledge and see what and understand what you need in the moment. Uh -huh. And yeah. without that that shame or that quick desire to like immediately flip that switch and be like, no, everything's fine. Like I'm, mm -hmm. I'm okay. Um, because we do that so often in our day to day where we have to act or present a certain way or, or show up a certain way. And I think therapy can be a really beautiful place to just kind of just let it, that shit go and just like really show your true self. And mm -hmm. I, that is just so hard to do on a, on a consistent basis. Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially when you're autistic and have been actively working to not show your true self for years and years. Yeah. Yeah. It's oh, so deeply oh, rooted, right? Okay. Sorry. I'm just no, go ahead. I was just going to say it's deeply rooted. And, you know, I, I think having an ND affirming therapist, that's another part of it. That's another green flag is the acknowledgement of how much energy goes into masking. Um, oh, yeah how challenging it is to really reveal like what's actually happening beneath the surface. And yeah. Yeah. So uh, I, I really appreciate that perspective and that ability as well. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So we've talked a bit about like language and characteristics of the therapist. I'm curious, I get this question a lot and I've got a few thoughts, but I'm, I'm going to put you on the hot seat first. Do you think there's certain therapy modalities that work better for autistic people. Yeah, I do. I I, I will say what I think doesn't work, but this is again, <laughs> I, I'm always going to defer to you when we're talking anything clinical because that's your that's your jam. I will always admit that I have not done the research and the work that you have done, and um, I think for myself and for a lot of autistic folks, EMDR brain spotting that stuff is really challenging. Mm. Uh, and I also think CBT is also really, really hard. The concrete, yeah. like, uh -huh. this is what you do. This is what you do. This uh -huh. is what you do. Um, I think DBT can be supportive. I love <laughs> IFS. I love parts work. Yeah. I think yeah. that Same. is so fucking powerful. And you can really tap into those special interests with parts <laughs> work. Mm -hmm. I had such a hard time accessing it. Like, visually, if you, if you were like, imagine this boardroom and your parts are there and they're like communicating. Uh -huh. And I'm like, 
what? No, like that does not work. But my mm-hmm. therapist knows I love Lord of the Rings. So she's like, all right. So imagine we're at that scene in the fellowship That's of the amazing. Ring where everybody is coming together and mm-hmm. you've got the dwarves and the elves and the wizards and the hobbits and who's doing what? And I'm like, at first I felt so fucking nerdy. And I was like, oh, this is making me so uncomfortable. But I've really been able to access so many different things mm-hmm. when you can drop into that that world. Mm-hmm. And to be able to use your special interests in a way where you can feel more connected mm-hmm. to emotions that are happening beneath the surface, I think that has been unbelievably life-changing for me. Yeah, yeah. I cannot agree more. I love IFS. I love it for autistic people. Um, I will say, I don't know if you're seeing this out on the East Coast. Um, ha- have you heard of plural systems? Um, it's kind of... Oh, gosh. Why did I say that? Now I have to try and explain it. Um, so it's I would say it's on the DID spectrum, disassociative identity spectrum. Um, when in learning about plural systems, what I find is a lot of people who identify as having a plural system, they have more conscious contact with the parts, but it's different than parts work. So that's the one thing with IFS. I'm like, I love IFS. But then if someone comes in, and they're experiencing like they're identifying as a we so people with plural systems often will identify as being plural and again it from a affirming lens of like this isn't something i'm trying to fix about myself i'm trying i'm trying to figure out how to integrate these parts but that that's the one thing um that i think can lead to some confusion is when you're doing ifs work but if you're working with a plural system what the therapist might be conceptualizing and what the person's bringing in um there's going to be a little bit more to navigate there. And there are, I've seen some CEs come out for working with plural systems. It's so new and it's, it's nothing that's in the DSM yet. Um, okay. That was a, I'm like rabbit trailing today. Well, you, Megan in her clinical work. That's, that's right up their alley. So thank you for that. Um, but yeah, it's, I'm curious what you said about EMDR. I've wondered about that. I've heard some autistic people talk about that being helpful. So I'm, but it makes sense to me because it's such an isolated memory you're working with and our brains are so divergent. So yeah. that actually intuitively makes sense to me. Um, Almost flooding happens too with you. Yeah. There's yeah. a lot of flooding and when you're bringing back that very specific memory. And I've always found that, and I've, you know, this is just anecdotal. So this is really not evidence or research-based whatsoever. But what I've heard so often is that it's just so hard with the eye movement and constantly mm-hmm. like flooding yourself with memory mm-hmm. and then being able to access. And I think that mm. for myself, I shut down immediately. I've tried it a couple of times. And, um, but I've also heard about ND affirming EMDR starting to come to the surface too. For, mm. But I, I have not participated in it. I kind of got turned wow. off early on in my yeah. life. I've never tried it. Um, I, I'd, I'd be curious. I, I think I probably would not like the flooding aspect of it. Um, it. It's so experiential. I think that would be hard for me. That's the um, hard part, I think, is the experience yeah. piece. And that's what was hard for me about brain spotting too. Uh-huh. I don't know if you've done that, but like I, haven't. Uh-huh. I did the brain spotting training and I could not access. Like, you know, you're doing the uh-huh. practicums and they're moving, you know, uh-huh. the thing back and forth, find the brain spot, okay. And then like, what are you experiencing? What are you accessing? Mm. And I'm just like numb, flat, dissociated, nothing. Uh-huh. And when that happens to me in therapy, uh-huh. I get so frustrated with myself. Oh, totally. I mean, or, or that just you hearing that, it, it makes me think of all the times someone's asked me how I'm feeling and I can't answer. Like, and, and all of the situations I've been in where like I'm in a situation and someone's trying to evoke an emotion, especially growing up religious, I was in that situation a lot but then also in therapy training and being like, I feel like I'm supposed to be feeling something right now and I'm not. And then I get in my head about that. Um, yeah. Yeah. So if I that was, up. I was like, I want to get through this practicum. You're like, yeah, I'm feeling this thing. And like, yeah. can, we, can we fucking move on? This is awful. Yeah. Totally. Totally. What about you? Like what, what do you think works and what doesn't you? So you feel like IFS is probably up there. Yeah. I, I really like IFS for, for especially. And I think for multiply neurodivergent people, like I'll talk a lot about like my ADHD part and my autistic part. And um, yeah. so I just, I, I love the language of it. I love, I think it 
de-stigmatizes and de-shames because it creates a little bit of distance from parts. So like this part of me wants this, this part of me wants this. So also the ability to bring in more complex thinking, which is is harder for a lot of us. We are more prone to that rigid thinking. So I think it provides a concrete way and a visual way, which works really well for the autistic brain to do some complex nuanced thinking. So yeah, I love IFS. Um, other ones, I, I do like ACT for a lot of um, autistic people, not for everyone, but a lot of people. I responded well to like learning ACT as a therapist and I use a lot of that sort of mindfulness in, in my day. It's not, it's different than CBT in that you're not trying to change the thoughts, you're changing your relationship to the thoughts. So right. I think it honors the complexity and the existential aspect of a lot of our thoughts while helping you to distance from them enough that you can kind of hold on to yourself and ground yourself. Yeah. So that, that's what I typically also think can work well. Um, and then I really like interpersonal stuff because we're so often trying to figure out what the other person's thinking that if you can do that in the room therapeutically, I think it can be really healing. It takes quite a bit of like ego strength or psychic strength to be able to do that. So maybe doing some other work before before you do that. Um, but interpersonal therapy or um, I really like relational psychoanalysis, traditional psychoanalysis. Um, I'm not sure how I feel about that for autistic people. It might be too much of a blank slate of the therapist. Relational psychoanalysis is the third wave. Um, and it's the the assumption is, is the therapist and you are always co-creating the reality and that the therapist is not off the hook. They are part of the dynamic as well, but we get to talk about it. We get to understand it. We get to look at it together with curiosity. Um, I think that sort of living lab of relationship, can we understand what's happening between the two of us, can be so, so healing because so many of us have relational trauma and confusion coming into therapy. So I would say those those four relational interpersonal act and IFS would be and and DBT I think has some good strategies as well but those would probably be my favorite ones for us. I like the relational um like on or analysis. I've actually never heard of that third wave so that's pretty cool. I I couldn't deal with the blank slate psychoanalysis like mm -mm. that was really challenging for me to be like what yeah. is, is happening right now. Yeah. It, it I don't think it would cultivate enough psychological safety in the room to be able to do work because um, partly as a high masker, we're always trying to tune to the other to figure out um, what, do, what does that person want me to be? Right. So with the blank slate, it's like we're flailing. No, but if you, so if you could talk about it though, it's so like my therapist who, who was relational psychoanalytic, he did hold kind of a blank slate in the beginning because he could tell how badly I was trying to figure out who he was so I could figure out who to be. But we were able to talk about it. We were able to talk about what was happening around my like desire to please him or my desire to adapt to like, um, you know, be the ideal patient. So the, I think if the blank slate is there, but it can be talked about, I think it's okay. But if it can't be talked about, if it's like, oh, well, what is it bringing up for you that you can't read me? And if it's always deflecting back to. Yeah, that would surely ensure that I would never come back to that person. I would just, I'd be like, yep, all right. Yeah. Once I'm done yeah. today in 43 minutes, I'm getting the hell out of here and I'm not coming yeah. back. Yeah. What are your thoughts on CBT for autistic folks? Um, yeah, I agree with you. I think it's so linear and logical and our brains tend to be so divergent in context like high context in the sense that, well, that thought in this context made sense, but it's pulling thoughts out of context to work with them, which yeah. just doesn't work for most of us. It does work for some though. And I think like I, I've worked with some people who are autistic and not autistic ADHD, who are, who are maybe like engineers or coming from a really linear logical um, background who actually really like it. So I I wouldn't do a blanket slate statement of it's always bad. I do think in general it doesn't work well. Um, that said, there's some things I pull from CBT, like having a list of common cognitive distortions and just being able to identify like, 
oh, my brain's doing that right now. Now I'm going to go in and try to change my thought. But like, I'm just mindfully noticing my all or nothing thinking filters on right now. I think that sort of thing can actually be really helpful. But again, that's that's taking a CBT idea and then using it mindfully versus let's try and change your thought you're having right now, which I, I just think is really invalidating for a lot of us. I'm glad that you named that about the folks who are maybe autistic, but not autistic ADHD. How if you do find yourself in like engineering or software design or something that is really cognitive heavy, where your brain is just thinking very, very, very rigidly and and, and linearly Mm -hmm. out these patterns. I think CBT probably makes a lot of sense in that regard. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm really glad you named that certainly does not work for me. Um, in general, like thought stopping to me is fucking mind boggling. Like just stop having this thought. It's like, that is infuriating to me, but I, I agree. Like if you can pick out pieces of all of these, um, theories and modalities, I think they can all be applicable and Mm -hmm. useful. And Mm -hmm. again, just want to reiterate to everyone listening that none of this is blanket statement stuff. Like there's always going to be little pieces that work for you. And you may have had great experiences with some of this stuff and you may have had horrible experiences with some of this stuff. Ultimately, I think it circles back to what you named initially. And it is the rapport with therapists. Like if the rapport is there, you're going to be more willing probably to try new techniques and you're probably going to be more open to them. If the rapport is not there, you're going to shut it down. And I I certainly have done that. Like if you could, that person could be the best therapist in the world. But if if the connection and the rapport and the relationship is non-existent, whatever you're trying to get me to do or try to do, I am going to not be open-minded to it. I'm probably just going to be like, yeah, I'll try it. And again, Mm -hmm. in my head, I'm never coming back here and I'm done with this. So Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I can't remember where I read this or heard it said, but someone talked about how like there's more diversity within autism than like autistic to allistic. I'm not quite capturing what they were saying, but essentially the idea that like autistic people, there's so much diversity that, and that's partly why someone's like, what's the best therapy for autistic people? It's like, well, there's a lot of different kinds of autistic people and what works well for one autistic person might not work well for another. So, so I love how you, how you said that of it, it really, well, it really depends on the person and their context and comes back to that human relationship. Is, is this someone that, um, that you can have an authentic encounter with? Yeah. And I I think for a lot of you listening and myself included, and I imagine for you, Megan, like you're going to have multiple therapists throughout your life, probably. You know, yeah. you're going to go through these phases and chapters of healing and, and learning and growth and transformation and um, what you preferred and liked and enjoyed in the therapy room five years ago is probably very different than today. And mm-hmm. the next therapist that you see will probably be very different than the one you're seeing right now. It just happens. And that's really common um, to have different phases of your uh, mental health journey. So you know, if you're feeling any sort of way about that, I just want to really validate that you're going to have a lot of people in your life who are probably going to come in and out and some that are going to stay longer than others. Yeah, absolutely. So do our awkward goodbye. Well, I can feel, I can feel the energy of we're wrapping up. I'm being, I'm like trying to think about something real. Like we've covered a lot of ground, but like, have we talked about what to what not to look for, like things for people to really pay attention to and kind of acknowledging this is probably not going to be a good fit. I guess it could be Mm -hmm. everything that is opposite of what we've talked about and what Mm -hmm. you should look for, um, which seems Mm -hmm. pretty easy to to state that. Yeah. Uh, But just just my thought right now is for those of you who are concerned about or confused about or overwhelmed with, the process mm-hmm. of finding a therapist. I, there are ND affirming uh, directories out there too. Yeah, I've I've got several. We can put them in the show notes, but I've got several on my resource page on my website. So if you go to neurodivergentinsights.com, I think slash resources and scroll to the middle, I've got like four or five directories. There's even one for for the UK, which is awesome. That's um, awesome. And and they're growing, like they're growing daily. And 
I more and more therapists who are neurodivergent are coming out as neurodivergent. So like also it's it's more I mean, pretty much every neurodivergent therapist I know has a long wait list, but um, yeah. there's more of us and it's easier to find us. Yeah, that's a great point. I think that for those of you um, listening, Megan's website has so many great resources and that can be a really uh, helpful way to do that. And if you're not in urgent crisis, you know, if you find someone who you really want to work with and they have a wait list, get on it. Just get on it. You yeah. know, you never know how quickly that's going to move. And it is worth the wait if you are waiting for someone specifically who uh-huh. really gets it or who really can help you or support you through your journey and validate and affirm. Because otherwise, you're scrolling through psychology today and you don't know who the fuck you're calling most of the time. I mean, it's just like, I'm going to call the first 20 people I see and then whoever calls me back first is going to be my therapist. Mm -hmm. That that doesn't always lead to great results for the therapist or for the client. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And one thing I think, um, I I think autistic people might, I I know I would be this way of like, it would feel wrong to be on multiple wait lists because it's a wait list. I don't know. Maybe you're not like that. But so I like to explicitly tell autistic people, you can be on multiple wait lists. That's actually really normal and you should be on multiple wait lists. So if there's a few therapists that you're thinking I might be, a, they might be a good fit for me. Um, it's totally normal to be on multiple wait lists. That, that it's part of why wait lists can go faster because by the time we call someone on the wait list, um, m- maybe they've already found a therapist often is the case. And you're not going to hurt the therapist's feelings Mm-mm. by being on multiple wait lists, deciding to go with whoever comes available first that is absolutely okay. <laughs> and it's totally normal. It happens all the time. The therapist is not going to get their feelings hurt by that. They're just going to move on to the next person on the wait list. Okay. So I know a lot of the times we can feel some guilt around stuff like that, but totally part of the process. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Well, I hope this was helpful for everyone and we will continue to have conversations around this because I think this is a very important topic for those of you who are looking for support. And again, lots of resources out there and we'll put those in the show notes so you have easy access to them. And we will plan on seeing you next week. So we have new episodes coming out all the time on all major platforms and we will see you later. Bye. And now, pause for a word from our sponsors. From new patients faced with an empty lobby and no idea where to find their therapist, to clinicians with a session running overtime and the doorbell ringing, some of the most anxiety-ridden moments of a therapy appointment happen before a session even starts. This episode's sponsor, The Receptionist for iPad, helps you tackle some of that pre-appointment apprehension and anxiety. The Receptionist for iPad is an easy-to-use digital client check-in system that helps your visitors check in securely to their appointments and notify their practitioners of their arrival via SMS, email, or your preferred channel. No more confusion, endless lobby checking, or having clients sign in on paper logbooks. It can even help you upgrade and update your demographic information for your clients as well and even validate parking. Start a 14-day free trial of The Receptionist for iPad by going to thereceptionist.com slash private practice. Make sure to start your trial with that link and you'll also get your first month free if you decide to sign up.